Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're speaking with Dr. Mark Lederbach. Dr. Lederbach is Professor of Theology, Ethics, and Culture. He's also Vice President for Student Services and Dean of Students at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Lederbach holds a Ph.D. from the University of Virginia, and he has been teaching at Southeastern since 2000. He is the author of books such as Chasing Infinity, Discipleship as the Pursuit of the Infinite Treasure, Defending the Faith, Engaging the Culture, Essays Honoring L. Russ Bush, and he co-edited this with Dr. Bruce Little, uh, also True North, Christ, the Gospel, and Creation Care, uh, co-authored with Dr. Seth Bible. He has a new book coming out this summer called Ethics as Worship, Moral Discipleship to the Glory of God. That'll be published by PNR Press. Today, we'll be re-exploring Dr. Lederbach's recent lecture, The Good God, The Good Creation, The Grand Story, and Our Glorious Response, a conference introduction, which was presented during our Goodness of Creation and Human Responsibility conference. His lectures and others from the conference are available through our website. Dr. Lederbach, thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, Ken. Thanks for having me aboard. Uh, I've looked forward to this uh, uh, to this uh, podcast for quite some time. You and I have had a number of conversations about creation care. Uh, just give a simple def- definition. Uh, what is your understanding of creation care? Yes, yeah, so I would start with the creator. Uh, so whatever the creator puts into uh, actual existence would be that which we would call the creation. So when we think about creation care, it would be people who are made in his image caring for the things that he's made. And so it's a very broad definition, but it's a really good starting point because it helps us to not just think of this as what some folks want to think about environment or green. It really is everything that God's created from the angels to the dust in the ground. So what is our role in that creation care? I don't think we're supposed to take care of the angels per se. No. Well, uh, you know, that's, that we'll find that out when we get to heaven, I guess, at some level. But I, I agree with you on that. But the things that the Lord has created on this uh, earth, what we see with our eyes, and, and perhaps what we even can't see, but does have physical representation like microbes, things along those lines, these are all a part of the things that God created. When we talk about it, we generically use the word, the, the word, the world. So the creation of the world and all the things that are in it are part of what God has asked humans to have a very particular and special role to try to care for, to try to cause to flourish, if you will. So when I think of creation care, I want to think of it in uh, both the negative and the positive sense. Let me kind of highlight that idea for a minute. In the negative sense, we, we want to protect it from being destroyed, but we also want to, on the positive side, help it to flourish maximally as God would have designed us to do. And so that both of those have lots of implications. And they also have a lot of places we also don't necessarily know exactly how to do it, uh, but that is our task. Yeah, that's interesting that you would say we don't know uh, quite how to do it. Um, 
Is this something that's simply an effect of the fall? In other words, what our original uh, intent and purpose by a good God is that we should we would be a blessing. Are we the curse? Uh, yeah. Are we are we the reason creation is groaning? It's a beautiful question. It's a really important one because it takes us back to Genesis one and two, particularly, and then obviously chapter three, where the fall takes place. But if human beings are created by God prior to the fall, there's a couple things we know right off the bat. One of those is that humans are not a virus. Uh, we're not something that's not supposed to be in the creation order. But we also know that we are a part of the creation order. And so, uh, therefore, the question would be, uh, does caring for humans, for example, is that a part of the creation care process? Mm -hmm. But I think a little bit more poignantly to your question is the nature of human beings within the created order is that we've been given a very particular and special status that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, describe human beings as image bearers. And because unique among all of the created order, human beings are described as image bearers, that title comes with certain responsibilities. Uh, so I, I, we would make the argument that the reason we don't necessarily know how to best care for creation is really twofold. One of them, um, because we're image bearers, what Genesis 1 and 2 tells us is that Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, were tasked with caring for the world. But even they needed to have instruction from the Lord on how to do that. So in Genesis chapter 2, we see the Lord telling them specific things they should and should not do, even prior to the fall. So what this tells us is that Adam and Eve would still be learners. They would still be under God's discipleship even before the fall or sin enters the world. So there's a sense that humans are always going to be growing. They're always going to be learning how to care for the things that God's created and expand them and cause them to flourish. But after the fall, particularly as you're kind of pointing to, after human beings sin, after we stain the world and, and kind of diminish our abilities as image bearers, we're, we're oftentimes now playing defense instead of offense. We're trying to figure this world out in ways where we've broken ourselves and it and yet we're still trying to help it to move forward, to become better, and to introduce things like technologies to help us to do that. So it's a mixed bag now, Ken. It's a, we're in a, we've caused a context by our human sin where we're not all that we could be, and yet we're still, um, we're both part of the problem and a part of the solution. So what I hear you saying, which is rather, you know, which, which is rather encouraging, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that we're not doomed to be uh, incompetent caretakers but we do have a major task before us yeah. um, to to know first off what is the proper role that humans have with the rest of the created order there seems to be um, at both extremes of the spectrum a sort of semi-gnosticism going on mm. in that uh, among those who would be on extreme positions that are believers they seem to have a devil-may-care attitude towards uh, creation because we're not staying here long. We're going to be raptured out. On the other side, uh, certain uh, extreme environmental uh, advocates see any human in, uh, involvement at all mm. as an intrusion of an alien virus. I think you even use that word. So... We, we need to understand ourselves as, as embedded and in, in, yeah. uh, as part of the created order, and yet we have a special role. Is that yeah. what you're saying? I, indeed, yeah. In fact, I really like the word embedded for a very particular reason. So to kind of highlight 
the word Gnosticism tends to give us the sense of, of separating the spiritual from the physical and suggesting that one or both of the, or one of them is not important so you kind of yeah. isolate whereas we as human beings we would describe ourselves as integrated wholes that we are a part of God created us to be both spiritual and physical and integrates those together and the tendency for us to say on the one hand the world the physical world doesn't matter it's all going to burn anyway so let's just do spiritual things get people saved and go to heaven that that's a that's an ancient gnostic anti-christian heretical idea where we just blow the world and the physical world off in a way that we don't care for it in any way that's problematic for multiple reasons one of them has to do in fact with the title that of the talk that i gave at the conference the very first phrase the great god i think if we start the conversation with the nature of who god is that if god is great and he did create the world then the world is his and that point is really important for us. It's not ours to blow off or to do with what we want. It's his. It's our Father's world, as Psalm 24 tells us. And so for we as image bearers need to take care of it, if nothing else, just for that part of it. But because we're embedded in it, it's also good for us as well. But then on the other side, you do have folks that, that really uh, can very much misunderstand the idea that human beings um, are, are here with a beautiful role that God gives to us. And if you deny that God exists at all, then humans may actually be just kind of a virus that's destroying the planet. So there's a whole worldview behind that that says human beings are just like a parasite. And uh, so we as Christians want to go the middle ground between those and find the more beautiful way, or as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, the more excellent way. So um, there are those who would say that the Christian worldview uh, has a lot has, has a lot to answer for. I'm thinking now of someone like Lynn White who uh, tried to argue that the, that the historic Christian attitude towards the cultural mandate given in Genesis 1 in which humanity is commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply and to uh, have dominion and subdue creation would say that this has, has contributed to the uh, rather uh, consumerist disposal attitude that many in the Western world have had towards uh, the environment. Um, how would you answer someone like Lynn White and his, uh, uh, you know, those who would agree with him? Yeah, so just for our readers or our listeners' sakes, Lynn White Jr.'s article uh, really was a landmark article in that really almost any university you go to now across the world will read this article. And what he does there is he basically makes the argument that beginning with some theologians around the time of the Reformation, which is also the time of the Enlightenment, um, the human or the, the biblical teaching that humans are supposed to subdue the earth, and I'll come back to the meaning of that word in just a few minutes, but that we're sub supposed to subdue the earth gave us carte blanche to do with the world whatever we want. So Lynn White Jr. then lays the blame for all all pollution in the world basically and all the uh, problems with the created order at the feet of Christians being exploitive of the world. And so one of the ways I would answer him is, uh, you know, I think there's, there's several major problems. One of those is that uh, the biblical teaching can be shown very clearly that that's not supposed to be the attitude of any Christian. So on the one hand, if there have been Christians that have been guilty of what he claims, then they were acting wrongly and I think we should simply say that. 
But secondarily, I think there, the, the age that he's speaking to was a Christianized age in, in the West. But that doesn't mean that the philosophers and the ideas coming out of it were all Christian. Particularly a lot of the uh, Enlightenment ideas that suggested that we should actually say we don't know whether God exists and then begin to live as materialists where the world is just the atoms that, uh, that we bump into in a physical world. And if that's the case, then all the world becomes is physical matter for us to manipulate. It only has instrumental value. Christianity has never taught that, that, that the value of the, of the created order is valuable because God gave it its own being and he calls it valuable. So if I could then, if you go to the Genesis 1 passage and you look at verses 26, 27, and 28, and the Lord says there for human beings to subdue and to rule the earth, the word subdue in the text there is the word kabosh in Hebrew. And that does have the sense of using your strength to, uh, to shape the world. It's a very muscular word. So there's no question that the Lord gives this, this uh, command, subdue and rule over the earth. But what we have to, what we would speak back to Lynn White, and we as Christians have to be very clear upon, is that if human beings had never sinned, and indeed when this command was given to Adam and Eve, they were not sinners. The language of image bearer meant that they were supposed to live in the world and rule and subdue the world as God Himself would do it, if He were the one who was the king over the world physically there. So in that sense. The strength to be used was to be used to make the world as beautiful as it could possibly be and flourish as, as most dramatically as it could under the good and mighty hand of a loving God, a benevolent God. So Adam and Eve's task was not to exploit the world, but rather shape it in a way that would bring maximal glory to the God that created the world. I always find it interesting when someone wants to um, blame the Christian worldview for uh all of the ills of Western civilization, yeah. uh, as if the Enlightenment never happened, right. uh, and and uh, forgetting that the Enlightenment was very much a deliberate and definite rejection of of of, of biblical authority, of divine accountability, mm-hmm. and and the ethic that is presented in Scripture, uh, and 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 then whenever. Um, uh, in, in enlightenment advocates uh, then behave in ways that it are entirely utilitarian suddenly suddenly it's the church's fault I, right. I find that uh, more than just a little bit ironic I'm thinking uh, Francis Bacon uh, who is considered uh, the father of the scientific method uh, in his book uh, Novum Organum in which he argues for uh, uh, the scientific method to be used on nature, and he has the famous quote where he says, "Nature should be tortured until she yields her secrets." Um, I don't think he meant it quite as graphic as that, but it's a catching, catch, catchy metaphor. Yeah. Um, and and I think that many times we find where Christians are then blamed for something that really has more to do with the Enlightenment yeah. than it does with the, the biblical worldview. Scholars disagree on this particular point of where to kind of lay some of the foundational ideas on it. When I study the history of ideas, it's it's David Hume, yeah. where I lay a lot of this ideas at its feet. And he was a, he wrote books against miracles. He was trying to under, undermine Christian faith in many ways. But with David Hume and then following with Immanuel Kant, m- some of the major questions were basically, if you can't be sure that God exists then try to function in a way as if he doesn't, but you still maintain morality. 
Well, as soon as you say we're going to function as if God doesn't exist, then you really have opened the door to anything goes. I think the end game of that is Friedrich Nietzsche, but of course that discussion is probably beyond where we want to be today. But if that's the case, then you're in a trajectory where it's really not just the Christian voice. It's in a Christianized culture where secular voices are now speaking and beginning to capture the imagination of people in the, in the universities and in the scientific communities where all of a sudden nature is something to be exploited, to be tortured, to use your language. And even if that torture is meant to be exacting care in the way that we look into it, it still has the sense of it's become something that we use for our own benefit instead of something that God has given to us to actually have some instrumental use, but which has its own inherent value as well, and that we're to steward as opposed to abuse. I think we would have to admit that uh, the church has been playing catch-up uh, in on uh, environmental concerns and creation care. Um, many of many of those who have been uh, raising uh, the alarm about uh, environmental issues uh, are, are non-Christians, are mm-hmm. uh, those who are coming from secular sources. Why do you think it is that the church is now? I mean, the church is now playing catch-up or trying to. Why do you think that is? Boy, that's, a, that's a really important and really big question. It's unfortunate because uh, because I think we misunderstand the label creation care and tend to think of it only as um, not cutting down trees or not strip mining or uh, cutting pollution down, uh, thinking about global warming. Because those are hot and heated political topics, Oftentimes, I think evangelicals are almost afraid to step in to speak to those areas because they may be coupled with other um, ethical and political ideologies that they don't necessarily want. The fact of the matter is really since the 1960s, there has been a a battle going on between where these ideas of creation care are best seated. Francis Schaeffer championed an evangelical view of creation care. Long before that, Catholics were trying to think about what does it mean to steward God's created order really well. But simultaneously in the 60s, we had an influx of Eastern mysticism and Hinduism and Buddhism. And a lot of the creation care thought that started to be written during those days were also coupled with Eastern worldviews. And I think what happens sometimes in evangelicalism is because we're afraid of being attached or connected with opposing worldviews, we'll sometimes deny the conversations that could actually be better had from within a Christian worldview. And I think environmental ethics is a very specific example of that. People are afraid of, quote-unquote, being a tree hugger because it might show that you are somehow connected to Eastern mysticism as opposed to being someone who honors God by caring for a tree because the property of the tree, or God is the owner of the tree, and we should honor the God who made the tree. And in that sense, we could be a thoroughgoing evangelical, highly committed to the inerrancy of Scripture and champion things that are creation care-oriented. Yeah, I think um, some of the problems that uh, certain evangelicals have is that many of the proposals being advocated uh, by certain ones in, in the environmental community um, would involve a level of governmental in, uh, uh, oversight and control mm-hmm. that they would say, well, you know, it's not going to pass uh, the duck test. Uh, if if it if it uh, uh, if it quacks like socialism and has web feet like socialism has a you know has a feathers like socialism it's socialism right and and that I think one hears that concern qu- 
quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you speak to those who say w- what we have is a conflict between um, uh, economic concerns versus environmental concerns? Southeastern believes it is important to support women as theologians and to equip them for service wherever their calling takes them. If God has called you to the ministry in the church, the academy, or at the home, Southeastern Seminary wants to equip you with the tools you need to fulfill your calling. With almost every degree available online, you can get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Use the waiver code CHRISTANDCULTURE all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. Well, when you get into the realm of making economics the center point of the discussion, it may be the case that we've also smuggled in not socialism only, but perhaps utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. So in other words, those who are conservative economically may have be, may be smuggling in worldviews from the Enlightenment that are anti-God, just as much as someone who does so on a socialist side, maybe a democratic side. So we have to be careful to not let our politics and our economics blind us to the idea that, you know what, all Christians should be capitalists. Well, um, it may be the case that there's some really good things in capitalism that we as Christians can, uh, can think through and adopt, uh, but that doesn't make capitalism the right way either. So sometimes our ethical or our economical theories, sometimes they're a mask for deeper uh, clouded thinking at the worldview level. So that's one thing I would say to that. But to, I think where you're really speaking to, Ken, is whenever we get to public policy questions, we do have to make decisions about what things should have priority in our point of view on that. So for an evangelical Christian, if you're pro-life, you're already making the argument for creation care because human beings are a part of the creation. So pro-life advocacy, anti-abortion argumentation is a form of creation care when it's thought about from a, from a Christian point of view. So now the question then becomes for the evangelicals is, uh, all right, if I'm already committed to creation care at some level, what issues within that should I be giving my time and energy to in order to see all of God's creation cared for very well? And if we're going to say, you know what, water quality in third world countries, air quality or land pollution in uh, parts of the world that are it's hard to even have sustainable food sources for people, if those things are important to God because the people are important and because God wants the world to flourish, then I have to give serious thought to say something more than just a soundbite, like I don't want to be one of those liberal tree huggers. There's, there's something more important for us to do. We have to think better about this. Yeah, I like the point that you're making that uh, uh, not sure, we just have to push back on the, the whole notion that one is against the other. In fact, it seems to be the other way around, that many of the environmental problems uh, that we see in our world today also adversely affect the economic development uh, and, 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 and human flourishing. And that if we really do want, and I think that uh, those who are advocating for free markets 
uh, which I consider myself, mm -hmm. a, you know, fairly, uh, I, I, I like the idea of a free market, uh, that, that those of us who really do care about economic development throughout the world, that we want to see human flourishing uh, in all parts of, 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 of the world, then we really have to pay attention to how uh, environmental um, damage has created real hardship. Oh yeah. In parts, there's parts of the world that, in fact, much, much of the the uh, problem we're having with it, with uh, uh, immigration, it's it's economic immigration uh, because of environmental damage being done in those those parts of the world. Yeah, I th I think that's really fair. And and let me also just agree with you on that. I'm very much a proponent of the free market system economically on that. In fact, I would, I would reject most of the worldviews that are accompanying socialism, uh, but certainly much of the, so, the economic policies that go through heavy tax and redistribution policies on that. I think uh, what I think maybe many of our listeners need to hear, though, is that in the United States, we, we do have what's basically a free market economy that's been modified to have some forms of heavy redistribution. We're at today is April 14th when we're doing this podcast. We're really close to what has historically been tax day. And tax day is a form of heavy redistribution of funds. So Americans aren't actually against redistribution in principle. What they're against is the amount of redistribution that we do. And so a lot of economic policies, like the Green New Deals that are out here, are suggesting that we basically uh, heavily, heavily tax people in order to throw money at policies that may have some very good responses to them but may bankrupt us at the same time. So that maybe there's other options on a, on a more free market economy basis that would get us to similar conclusions. That's the economic debate. I think for the Christian, if we slip into that as our primary argument, we've missed the key point. And the key point is the great God of the universe created the universe. The world is his. And if I'm a Christian, I have to take care of his stuff. Now, we do have to get into the weeds and ask how to best do that. But I can't be against creation care and environmental ethics simply because I don't like the economic policies. If I'm a Christian, I have to care for God's world. And that's where the Christian has to make uh, the principial arguments. As we uh, come to the end of our time, let me, let me ask one last question. You know, on the spectrum of responses, our, our assessment of the present situation. You know, looking at uh, the present situation, there are some who are very nonchalant and thinks things are fine. Mm. There are some who express worry and concern. Uh, and then there are others who are in a panic mm. and who would say that we're, we're, we're headed over a cliff. It's, it's in crisis mode. Where would you identify yourself on, on that type of spectrum? Yeah. And why would you think that that's the way we ought to see the situation? I'm, uh, I'm a little bit more towards the center I am, however, concerned that we are degrading the created order more than most evangelicals tend to think that we are. So that I, I would, uh, I don't know where the right and left of your discussion was, but yeah. close to center, but but concerned. I'm a concerned person on this. Let me tell you a little bit about a quick experience that can kind of highlight uh, where I am on this. So I'm the youngest of seven children. I come from a Roman Catholic family. I'm a I'm Baptist by both conviction now and, and choice. And uh for our, lead, our, read, our listeners' sake on that. But my father was a, a nuclear engineer after World War II. And uh, part of the interesting connection there with my own family is my son is now in the military, and uh, he had a chance to 
visit Camp Humphreys in Korea. So we went to go visit him over there. And while we were there, I took a trip to Japan and I got to visit Hiroshima. So where the United States dropped nuclear bomb, or, or the first atomic bombs were dropped in Japan. My dad, after the war, was a nuclear engineer, so I had that whole background on my side of things. So it was fascinating for me on many personal levels to walk through Hiroshima. But one of the things that struck me while I was there was how beautiful the city was, hmm. how green it was, uh, how, how robust the economy was. Um, but in the middle of that, there was a, still a destroyed church from the atomic bomb. There was a museum that poignantly and horrifically showed the damage that was done. Uh, you know, 150,000 lives immediately of, of men, women, and children, civilians, people who are not part of the war effort, etc. Those whole things were going on. But it struck me that within a short time, some 70 years later, the environment had responded remarkably. So how does that relate to your question? I think the Lord's creation has a remarkable ability to not only carry the life that's here, but respond to the tragedies of what humans do to the created order. It's remarkable, and to see that in Hiroshima was stunning. But what we don't know is if there is a point where we reach a limit, where we press economic barrier, or excuse me, environmental barriers so far and so hard that places just become barren. Water levels just rise. Now, it might be 150 years from now, but it's still, that's a question we have to ask, and how does that respond? So I am concerned that humans are not caring for the planet as God designed for us to do. But I'm also very confident that God's made the world more stable than people tend to think. So right in the middle of that, I want to come back to the point I've been trying to make all along. If my concern for the planet is largely fear-based, that we're going to rip it apart, or if it's largely denying that we're going to rip it apart, I think on both sides I've missed the point. The point is the Lord created the world. It's his world. The, the earth is the Lord and all it contains. And so as a Christian then, if the Lord cares for the earth, then I need to care for the earth. And I need to put deep thought and deep care into the way that I best live in his world because it is my father's world. We've been listening to Dr. Mark Lederbach, uh, Dean of Students at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and author of True North, Christ, the Gospel, and Creation Care along with Seth Bible. He has a new textbook coming out this summer that you're going to want to get. It's Ethics as Worship, Moral Discipleship to the Glory of God. You've been listening to the Christ and Culture podcast. Let me just encourage you to take a moment and uh, like our page. Give us a good review if you, if you have a few moments. Uh, we will appreciate that so very much. I'm Ken Keefley, uh, wishing you a blessed day.